0: to the keen yoga podcast bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life we consider this an offering a service to the community and a labor of love if you feel inclined any donations are appreciated just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast i hope you enjoy the show Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga Podcast is Eddie Stern. Eddie Stern learned Ashtanga Yoga under Pitabhi Joyce and Sri Charat Joyce. Practicing yoga from the late 1980s and Ashtanga from around 1990, he ran an incredibly popular and well-renowned yoga school in Soho, in his native New York. It became a community hub in New York for spiritual seekers as well as attracting many well-known names such as Madonna, Lou Reed and Gwyneth Paltrow. Along with Jocelyn, his wife, Eddie founded the Broom Street Temple, and within this space, it was Manhattan's first vaguely consecrated Ganesh temple. Eddy, while studying Sanskrit chanting and Vedic ritual, ran this temple alongside his duties as a yoga teacher. Eddie is somewhat of a polymath, an artist, a yoga scholar, as well as an avid student of science and modern technology. There are not really many fields that do not command his interest. He is the co-editor of Namarupa, a Hindu philosophy art journal, as well as sitting on many numerous boards and panels. However, his diversity of approach is increasingly evidenced in his more recent work as founder of the Breathing App, as well as the author of One Simple Thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. This is an incredible fusion of the ancient te- teachings of yoga with the current advances in biological understanding. He lives with his wife and daughter in Greenwich Village, close to where he grew up. He's currently working, amongst many other things, on his second book. Welcome, Eddie, to the Keenan Yoga podcast. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for coming.
1: Um, I'll just give a brief overview of why you got how and why you got into yoga. The most how and why? Yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, i probably the same reasons as you and everybody else, huh? Why did you get into yoga?
1: Um, because I did a philosophy degree, um, where did you do that? I did uh, my first part at King's in London and I did my second part at Warwick, um, in the Midlands and, um, and I was still anxious and depressed and in fact, more so than ever, you know, when I went into the, in the end, I went into the counselor's, um, room and she said, well, I said, I feel terrible. I'm embarrassed about being here. And she said, well, you and half of the philosophy, um, you know, graduates are here so then i just thought well, well i got into it for trying to understand and be happier in life and i'm not so if i've done all the thinking i can in my head which i had you know by the age of 16 i'd read you know everything under the sun well what can i do to make myself happy and so i went to the body you know i thought there's something in the body which is making me anxious and unhappy must be there and there you go <laughs>
2: hey, you know, my, my my daughter um my daughter is at king's college London. She's studying okay, classics. Right.
1: Uh, classics, yeah. But the yeah. other thing is it's subterranean. Everything is downstairs. So you're underground all the time, you know?
2: That's well, I mean, yeah. in New York City, we're used to that. So I guess she's right at home. Right. But she's, in, she's back in, in New York now studying online. You know, but it's funny. I, You know, I knew um, when I was getting into yoga, I was actually um, dating a girl who was a philosophy student at NYU. And um, she um, also was kind of like always depressed. I mean, not necessarily depressed, but very, you know, like pensive and like inward, but not in a sort in a way that felt kind of like healthy and Mm. um, flowering open because it's impossible to think your way out of your mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And if if all you're doing is try to like think through the issues all the time, um, it's and you and you find yourself. That you're at at a thought problem it's hard to think your way out of a thought problem you have to act Mm -hmm. your way out of a thought problem you know you have to act your way out and so um it was interesting to see like the the distinctions or the differences between like how i was approaching it with yoga at the time and how i saw the philosophy students trying to
1: figure it all out by like talking Mm -hmm. about it thinking about it now you've come the other way around haven't you you've come the other way around because you didn't do any education in your book it says which is incredible. And then you've become, you know, very kind of educated after doing the body stuff. You've gone the other way.
2: Yeah. But the education I have is it's what Deepak Chopra calls nickel knowledge. It's stuff you can learn on the internet or you can read, you can read in a book. You know, it's not real education. What I have, it's just picking stuff up along the way and making use of it. However, I feel like, but what that, what it doesn't allow me to do is it doesn't allow me to, um, to, um, structure my learning. Um, structure my articulation of arguments. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it hasn't taught me how to um, be a convincing writer because, you know, I'm just picking it up along the way and and figuring it out, as I said. So I think there's some, you know, great, there's great value to a structured education. And I, you know, obviously you have to keep going after that and, and figure things more out on your own. But there's something about um, study habits, discipline of study, articulation of thoughts and being challenged a lot, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and to be challenged in, in debate is a huge part of the Hindu tradition, like study yeah. and debate is a huge part of the Hindu tradition. It's a huge part of the Buddhist traditions as well, where you memorize texts, you learn them, you learn the meanings, and then you debate with people from opposing viewpoints so that you can like maybe clarify your own or try to prove yours right, right? Mm. Krishna Krishnamacharya used to say, and uh, A.G. Mohan also would um, echo this sentiment, that if you're a really good philosopher, you can argue um, your point from either side of the perspective and still be able to win. So it's right. just a matter of like knowing what it is that you're arguing and how to get there. And then that's the sign, Absolutely. he would say, of a good yeah. philosopher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always liked that. I thought that was really good. You know, It's not really about being right. It's just proving your point. Oh, you know, I
1: had a, um, a professor, Jermaine Greer, you know, Jermaine Greer. Well, she was like, she was a teacher at Warwick, right? One of my professors. And I mean, she could argue anything and she would argue both sides of the point completely convincingly. you know? So it it's is, really, it is it's really skill. great. It yeah. is a skill and yeah. it is great.
2: And it, and it drives home that point. I know I just said it, but I'll say it again, that it's not about being right, you know, because there is no right. It's about being convincing. It's about knowing the things so well that you can show the clarity of both perspectives um, cause what we're, what are we really trying to do? Do we want to be right or do we want to understand? And so if we want to understand, then maybe we just can try to understand everything from the perspective it's coming from. And then maybe we settle in on one thing, which we feel a great affinity for because it just clears the path for us. But it's not that it's right. And it's not that it's the only way. It's just the one that makes us feel the best. Um, but mm-hmm. to still be able to argue convincingly for something else, um, is a a sharpness of the intellect that's what i was going to say you know it's a clarity of the intellect and um and the sharpening of the intellect or as they say in sanskrit the buddhi that's like a key factor when it comes to yoga because um, otherwise if we don't have the intellect sharpened then we get lost in the field of manas the field of mind which are our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings and our desires and our dislikes and our memories and our traumas and all that that becomes the reality. And then when we want to argue for something, if we argue from it from the point of the mind where all of these different, you know, preferences are living, then we think that our preference is the right thing and that's what we should be arguing for. But if we are sharpening our intellect, we know, okay, all that stuff which is moving about isn't really, that's not the stuff. It's just superficial, mm. but it's not important. But I'm going to go to like this this layer deeper. And examine from there, from the layer deeper, and then you can really sharpen yourself on these different points, like the six orthodox schools of Hinduism, the yeah. et etc. And you just and so that's the, and then the sharpening of the intellect leads to the discernment from what is changing and what isn't changing, and that's where yoga begins to occur. The first stages, like from that discernment and separating off, here's the witness, here's the awareness. And here's all the stuff in nature, which is changing. And I need my intellect sharp and clear in order to make that discernment or it doesn't happen. I just identify with the stuff in the mind.
1: Did you always, I mean, I don't think you always had that viewpoint. I mean, when you started yoga, I think you started, you know, or at least you started looking at yoga books. I think I've read or saw in an interview that you were quite young and, you know, you're just figuring out and just kind of as almost a teenager, right? And just like everyone else, you kind of just. Trying to figure out where you stood in life, what, what the purpose of life was, where you fitted in. What point did it take over after practice? Because then you went to Mysore, then you did all the Mysore stuff, you know, and became very developed at yoga. At what point was this all, was this thread throughout? Was this, this wish for discernment and wish for understanding throughout, or did it go in fluctuations? I mean, my, uh, for example, my path on it was very much devout and very much in a Socratic method. And then, I got very much sidetracked with the gymnastics of Ashtanga yoga being, uh, you know, like most other people, uh, insecure, uh, adult and in my sort, good at it, good at it, you know, and then f- went down a complete rabbit hole with gymnastics for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's only almost now that I'm merging and getting back into what I originally started 25 years ago.
2: What do you mean, uh, gymnastics, a rabbit hole of gymnastics?
1: Well, it's not to say maybe didn't do something, but I think I got overly fixated on the postures, you know, mm-hmm. um,
2: Doing the postures and, well, learning more postures.
1: Doing the postures well, I mean, well is a, you know, that's a, perhaps a, a, a debatable term. As I think that I used them because I could do them, but I don't think I had any stiff to here or, you know, sukka in them. I think I just mm-hmm. used them to kind of stir up my nervous system, assuming that that was wanted, right? Like, uh-huh. I, yeah, yeah I, I felt, I don't feel I felt calmer. I felt more stirred up and more confused perhaps by the deep advances twists and the leg behind the head and all the you know the advanced b series yeah
2: yeah Yeah. so basically doing the difficult asanas um was uh enhancing the sensory experiences that you had of your nervous system by sensory i mean the sensations the feelings that you were getting and then that intensity of feeling from the postures was what you were identifying with as a spiritual experience or Mm, as a yoga practice Yes. And so, basically, it's the signaling from the nervous system, spend, you know, spitting out whatever it spits out. You know, you can call them hormones or, you know, endorphins, whatever. The names here don't matter. And then, um, and then we identify or misidentify with that sensation, like as a euphoria or as a feeling of great energy or whatever. Um, but really, all it is is a nervous system amping itself up um, from stimulation. But it's not a it's not a terrible stimulation. It's it's an it's an inner stimulation that we're doing. It's not like, you know, we're we're freebracing, you know, you know, crack yeah. cocaine or something. It's <laughs> yeah. you know, so so but I think this is a natural part of um of a yoga journey for many, many people. Um, that there, you know, we have outward stimulation, right. That we identify with is what should I achieve in the world? What am I supposed to be? And then we move to yoga and then there's an inner stimulation. And at first it's very, what we would call spiritual, you know, it's very, um, um, eye opening and life changing. And then maybe a plateau hits and then the idea of seeking experience in the, realm of feelings, you know, um, comes back into play. So we do harder practices and deeper practices. We want to learn more because we need more stimulation because we're not grounded in, in, in quiet yet. And this happens to a lot of people. So just generally speaking, not everybody. Um, and then what can happen is we can mistake that, um, uh, that inner stimulation of, of what we're, calling here the nervous system, as our spiritual experience. And we get swept away by it. I um, mean, we just keep going and going and going. It's a river that carries us. You know, we jump into the current. And um, then at a certain point, like the current starts to slow itself down. Like maybe there was something that needed to be burned out. Um, or worked on or, or just smoothed out a little bit for a while, for a decade, for two decades. And mm-hmm. then as it begins to smooth itself down, then all of a sudden, again, there's that inward turn of awareness going, okay, you know, th- I was, I was going through this thing for a while, but now I'm feeling it a little bit different. And so, and you readjust and it's, mm-hmm. and it's just part of it. And, and what can happen is we can go, oh, I, I went off track. And, um, but maybe that was our track. You know, maybe that was the only track we needed to be in, so we could arrive at this next place. And this next place we are, we're only going to be there temporarily, also, until we go on to the next thing. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it's a you know, I, I think it's a a phase of our lives that we should be um, non-judgmental about. You know, um, not to say, oh, I totally lost the thread eh, we probably did lose the thread, but now I'm just talking. I'm just talking off yeah, the top yeah. of my head. So we might have, yeah, yeah. now. and now I have, um, th- what I've been thinking about lately is that mm. maybe one of the reasons so many Westerners, quote unquote, lose the thread, and that happens to us because we um, haven't really had a good foundational training in the Hindu thought systems and the Hindu philosophies and in all the different yoga systems. Um, so our perspective is not really steady yet. Um, and so then there's going to be a lot more variable. So I, I really feel these days that, um, you know, especially with all the conversations about cultural appropriation, which I for mm-hmm. the most part agree with, um, that, um, yeah, we, you know, We need to keep remembering as yoga teachers to study the Hindu traditions, to study the yogic texts, and to always keep grounded in their perspective um, and not try to have our own understanding necessarily of it yet, but to understand what the traditions uh, um, held and what the traditions thought was important. Um, for example, the four aims of life. For example, that's a foundational thing that probably any serious yoga student should really know about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, dharma, artha, kama, moksha. Like, and if in because so many of the practices are framed in in the four aims of life. So if we don't understand that yeah. framing, then what are we doing?
1: I think it's yeah, because exactly it. We we haven't we've got a practice, but we haven't got any context whatsoever, right? I mean. Even when you go yeah. to Mysore, you you know you kind of see like any, any person is doing, you know, they're doing puja in the morning, you know, and then, you know, they're, they're making the uh, rangolis on the doorstep. And then, you know, even even if they're not philosophical, they, they've got a whole con- kind of context or practice with it, you know, they can kind of fit the yoga into, right? And when it becomes detached, I think it's just kind of gone wild. Um, Correct.
2: When it becomes detached, been, all it becomes is a practice. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But your reflections. I mean, if we, I don't want to be prying, but what what do you think back now and looking back at that experience? And obviously, you were teaching myself for twenty years, and I, and I believe that you're. You've mentioned you were doing hatha yoga now, not ashtanga. What are your reflections back on the ashtanga period? Do you have any?
2: Well, I mean, um, I um, I, you know, I'll just tell you one quick thing. I remember, um, hmm. uh, I was eighteen years old, and um, I was um. I was living in my first apartment on Cornelia street, uh, in Greenwich village, just two blocks away from where I grew up. And, um, I was, I had been on a, on a spiritual quest uh, without having any context or support for that quest for, for some time. Um, it was spurred on by my ninth grade English teacher and uh, Mrs. Benditson, Jane Benditson. And, um, I remember lying there and I was just very kind of in touch with the, um, with my awareness state, just awareness, you know, and I was thinking about personality and identity. And I was thinking to myself, you know, the awareness that I'm experiencing now is me. It's going to be the exact same awareness I experience when I'm 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, that I'm always going to be the same awareness. Maybe I'll look different or dress different or listen to different music, but I'm always going to be this. This is always going to be me. Or the I feeling of me. And it has been because, like, though my interests have changed and though, you know, my age has changed, like, I remember that very, very clearly. I remember the feeling of that very clearly. It wasn't enlightenment. It wasn't samadhi. It was nothing. It was nothing more special than anyone who just pays attention would naturally come across. And people have been spontaneously thinking those things for since there's been people, probably. So, um, that has been, that's been the thing for me, you know? That's been the thing. And um, so, yeah, I did a lot of yoga before I got to Mysore. Um, and I had um, done a lot of different practices that were very important to me. Um, then I got to to Mysore in 1991, started practicing. Um, that's where I met Patabi Joyce in India. And um, I wanted to learn what he had to teach and so I stuck with that system um, for mm-hmm. a long time, and um, I continue to think it's a very good system, of course, um, and um, and I still continue to teach it. I don't practice all of it anymore, um, and this is only during the um, recently during the pandemic. But I, I practiced it um, with um, with joy and conviction up until the time of the pandemic, right, and then right. over the past half year or so. I've started rediscovering practices that I used to do when I first began doing yoga when I was 19, 20, 21, and, um, and enjoying them a lot again and, and finding the things that I'm looking for in from a yoga practice. And so, you know, like everybody, there were time, well, not necessarily everyone, but like a lot of people, you know, sometimes you do a practice or you do something because you think you're supposed to think, oh, this is what, you know, this is what's expected of, of you, you know, and, um, but sometimes that expectation of what you think uh, uh, an ideology holds out um, isn't the thing which gives you meaning. Um, You know, there might, there's something in there, of course, there's something to learn, but maybe it's not the thing that completely fulfills your purpose or meaning in your own life. And uh, therefore, you, you know, you don't at- attack the methodology or the thinking system, you decide, okay, what is it that is going to continue to connect me deeper to meaning and purpose? Um, and in regards to yoga, what does, we should always question like, okay, now on the one hand, study, what does the yoga tradition hold? And then on the other stand- hand, understand, okay, well, what does yoga mean to me? Like when I'm practicing, what does it actually mean to me? How do I want to feel when I'm done with my practice mm. every day? You know, what What do I want my state of mind and my state of my body to be in when I'm done? Um, how are these things affecting me energetically for the good? What can I take from the past 30 years of learning um, and begin to apply it in different ways so that it has an overall positive beneficial effect? Um, and that if I look into the future, if I look 30 years from now, I'd still like to be practicing yoga like Krishnamacharya was when he was in his 80s mm. and 90s, um, or Mr. Iyengar, who continue, although I've never done really Iyengar yoga, so I, I'll just look at the Krishnamacharya side of things, um, that um, yes, I would like to be mobile when I'm in my 80s and 90s. I'd like to be able to, you know, walk around, get out of bed in the morning, cook a meal you know, do my laundry, uh, all that stuff, you know, um, I, I'd like to ma- navigate whatever the new technology is, maybe we don't have computers anymore. And so uh, I'm, I'm playing the long game, and I've been playing the long game for a while. And for me, the long game does not include doing advanced practices anymore, right. because they make me tired. I'm, I got a lot of shit to do. I'm busy. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, so aside from teaching every day, there's a bunch of different things I'm involved with, And, um, I, uh, I want my energy for those. And, um, Mm. if I, if I do intensive practice every day, I start to get tired. That's just me. You know, that's not everyone. So what I'm trying not to do is, uh, in fact, what I'm not doing is I'm not, um, I'm not assuming that my experience is everyone else's experience. And that's a mistake that teachers sometimes make. They go, you know, this is my experience of it, so it needs to be everyone's experience. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna make these demands of my students. But mm. no, you can remember that at a certain point, my experiences of certain types of practices were very positive, and even if I might not be teaching those, uh, practicing those right now, they're still in me. You know, they're mm. still part of they're still part of the process of who we become, and so it will be useful for someone who else it might be useful for someone who has more facility that in their bodies than I do right now. So I can continue to teach them. Um, and I can also continue to teach the things that I'm also presently doing that have a lot of meaning for me. So that's kind of, you know, where, where I'm at. Yeah. Even though I don't like to, you know, belabor the point of talking about that stuff. You get the idea.
1: That's good. Um, I feel one thing is with the, with the Ashtanga being so dynamic is you know, as a young guy, it really keeps you on the straight and narrow. It's like if you've got a lot of energy to burn, where well, it's like better to put your energy into something which is, you know, hopefully not too harmful than what I would have done with that energy otherwise, right? Um, and that's one thing I thought about the practice. Um, another thing is I wonder, at a certain point, whether it's too fast paced. At a certain point, would one want to slow down? I mean, when, when you're oh. talking about getting different things out of practice now or looking for different things, and you talk in your book about uh, asana and vinyasa and stitthi. Um, and I'm asking a couple of different questions here. Would your vinyasa still have stitthi in it? Oh, sorry. Would your, your practice still have vinyasa in it?
2: Well, um, yeah, what, what I take to be vinyasa is the linking of breath and movement together. Mm -hmm. One breath and one movement. Um, and so anytime you move into a pose or move out from a pose, you're going to come into that pose on an inhale or an exhale. Um, and uh, But I'm not necessarily, you know, counting those like they're counted right. in Ashtanga Yoga. Um, okay, in terms of pace, uh, it seems that um, the Ashtanga Yoga practice works very well at a medium pace. At a slow pace, it becomes something else. At a fast pace, your mind spins out. But if you keep like a medium pace, um, like the steady rhythm to it, it seems to have a very, very good effect. Um, it can have a grounding effect if you don't go too fast. Uh, it can have an ungrounding effect if you go too fast. If you go very slow with it, it becomes something else. Um, you know, it, you can become maybe tired, or you can become, uh, you know, the energy won't start to move in the same way. So it just seems that like this particular form, formulation moves well at a medium pace, at a steady pace. Um, that's just one of the things I noticed from over the years. And um, I think that there are other practices that work well uh, in a very slow, slow pace. And then other practices like the stuff um, that we're, we're doing a course right now with a guy named Ricky Warren, Warren from London, who's um, doing a course on the similar physical positions of yoga, kalari, and kushti. Kushti is Hindu wrestling. Kalari, of course, is a South Indian martial art. Um, a lot of similar positions. And a lot of those are done pretty quickly. You do them really briskly. Um, right. And then they have sort of a, a, a different type of cardiovascular effect. And um, one of the things, I talked about this the other day online where um, you, um, or on the Instagram, where you can find a, some of these poses in Kalari uh, or in the kushti, and they're done very briskly, but when you hold them static, they become yoga asanas. So, you can do something in a static way, it becomes an asana, you can do something in a dynamic way, maybe it becomes something you see in another tradition, which is a physical tradition, but still has a deep spiritual and or religious basis to it. Um, that, to me, is really interesting, that uh, you can use the same thing in different ways and get different outcomes. Because you know what? Obviously at different times in our lives, we look for different outcomes and different people who come to us as students, they're going to have different needs as well. So to know a little bit like how to modify things, if it needs to be modified, can be an interesting um, education for, well, I'm not going to say us, but I'll say for me, I like it. I think it's Cool and interesting, and it it it, it it broadens and expands the idea of the yoga tradition. You know, actually, the yoga tradition um, developed in the midst of a massive dialogue of viewpoints of people who were seeking reality or who had found reality and were elucidating it in different ways. And yoga was part of that conversation. So, um, it's, you know, why not eavesdrop a little on what the other people are saying and, um, and broaden our vision? Um, doesn't mean we have to do everything. You know, we can still be really focused and really disciplined and choose one practice and, and that's great and one guru and that's great. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, we can, we can learn, we can be open, we can see, ah, this was maybe influenced by, you know, this philosopher in the 10th century you know interesting that's that adds value to my life
1: mm. what about the idea of the asanas having a particular kind of energetic quality to them i mean do you, how much credence do you give to that do you pick certain groups of asanas to give a particular energetic effect can you do that or are they just more generally regulating and and within the context of yoga method being patanjalian to some degrees i.e for clarity or concentration of mind
2: all right. So, um, what do you think on that?
1: Um, I'm probably to the latter, to be honest. The more I go on, the less I'm, I kind of think mystically, and probably the more I'm pragmatically. They give a stability of concentration, um, and you want to feel vibrant in the body, and that's going to give you a general sense of vitality and optimism in your in your outlook. And you're going to be interested to study more and question more because your body feels better, and you're more. You know, like everyone knows, you sit on the sofa and watch Netflix for two hours, and you don't feel like doing anything after that, you know? So, you know, I think physically, you could probably do a lot of types of training, but would you stick at it? Would you stick at it? The thing is, yoga is quite sticky, you know? I I, I never stuck at gym, for example. Mm -hmm. And also, gym is kind of stimulating in a way that yoga is kind of different, you know? And then they give the basic kind of enlivening. And then you're a bit still, you're still as well. And then what do you do with that stillness? Then you're, you're inevitably, sooner or later, you start to question, you know? So it, it it's indicative of of a certain perspective of, of, of consciousness, but I don't necessarily think that they're kind of this energetic Kundalini kind of stirring, you know, that you'll just do the postures and don't think about it at all and something will happen to you out there, you know? And that's definitely within the Ashtanga kind of stream, certain threads of it, right? Like just do it and don't think and, some mystical thing will happen in your head. No, you have to question it as well. It's a starting point, only a starting point. It, there you go.
2: So you think globally, basically globally speaking, asanas are good and they have a positive effect. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> in the most <laughs> in the most general sense, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If if not if you're not doing them sensibly, if if you're being kind of crushed into them because you've got to do lotus to progress to the next posture, then that's ridiculous. And you know, I mean like yeah, obviously, we you know you can you have to be sensible about them, but and you would take that as a given, but um we can't take that as a given apparently. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. Um. No, I I think that globally also asanas generally speaking are good. I agree. Um. And uh. From you know I also think that they're, that different postures have different effects. Um, right. And we can see this in the hatha yoga texts where they describe a benefit. Um, and if a benefit is ascribed cool. to an asana, that means that it was taught for and discovered for a particular reason. Um, and with the exception of the seated asanas, which are used primarily for meditation, when we look to the wide range of asanas outside of the simple, pure meditative asanas, um, those seem to have uh different types of effects on the nervous system and uh therefore okay so let's just look at it this way now uh, again i'm just talking cuz we're hanging out having a conversation um you know let's just anyone listening in just pretend that adam and i are like at a coffee shop and we're just talking That's the idea. You know, yeah we're just talking trash about whatever comes into our mind um and um so um if you take something, if you look at the way that um, the nervous system operates or the way that it's formed as we have a central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system is all the nerves outside of the, the spinal cord, there are certain compressions um, that are going to stimulate the um Parasympathetic branch of the nervous system, which is coming out from the area of the lower lumbar in the sacrum and up above the cervical into the brainstem area. Okay. So anything which is going to be moving forward is going to be relaxing and calming for the parasympathetic nervous system and also, therefore, for the sympathetic. Now let's look at the sympathetic nervous system is being the autonomic branch of our nervous system that moves us towards um, cellular repair, restoration, the absorption of nourishment, like digestion, and um, the the healing and cleansing activities of sleep. Okay, so the parasympathetic nervous system does a lot of stuff. It's connected with our exhalation. It's connected with uh, contractive movements, largely. Um, including, you know, like our um, sympathetic stimulation of the eyes, which is happening all through the day. The retinas will, um, will dilate, and then parasympathetic is contraction. So anything which is going to be a contractive type of a movement is in association with the parasympathetic activities, because it has activities. And these are going to be cellular repair, restoration, digestion, and sleep. And rest. Um, And all these are either nourishing or reparative, especially sleep. Um, And then our sympathetic is anything that moves us towards activity, Uh, anything which is an expansive movement, um, like an inhalation or a widening of the eyes. Um, And um, when there's a lot of, uh, if there's environmental demand, it it will be the release of an excess of stress hormones which will move us into the fight or flight state that people talk about um, when they talk about the sympathetic nervous system, that is an an extreme expression of it. Um, So these two, these are complementary branches of the things, the automatic things that make us go. Um, uh, A backbend, for example, is going to stimulate the sympathetic nerves that are coming out in the mid portion of the spine from right at the lower cervical down to about third or fourth, of the lumbar. So to squeeze those and, con- and and extend those back is going to put an excitable pressure rather than a relaxing pressure on those sympathetic nerves. So it's going to be stimulating. So for relaxation, you're going to have forward movements, whether it's a child's pose or Pashtimattanasana. Uh, and for movements that are going to stimulate and give energy to the nervous system, any type of a backbend, a shalabhasana to a dhanurasana to a you name it, doesn't matter. That's one of the reasons why you find that for students of yours who or, or in ashtanga yoga who are starting intermediate or getting through the first half of intermediate, sometimes they have a hard time sleeping because they spent a long time relaxing the nervous system with forward bending asanas. And now all of a sudden there's a lot of emphasis into the sympathetic nerve chain in the back of the spine, which is excitable. Um, Even putting your leg behind your head, what that's doing is once you get the leg behind the head, you have to use your middle back muscles to hold your leg in place. Um, So it's not really a, a hip opening thing, but it's a test of your strength of the back. And so just the action of lifting your back up to keep your neck in place to hold the leg back is also excitable for the sympathetic
1: ganglion. Yeah. Um, still so. I found that with leg behind the head for sure. Stimulation, yeah. right? very stimulating, and fun. no doubt. Yeah, it is fun. Yeah. Having said that, you 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 set me a trap there because I remember the the, the second half of your book is all about the the effects of the nervous system. <laughs> very strongly. Um, you know, in belief of the energy of the posture. Um, and you know, it is very interesting. I'm not sure as I go completely down that track on it can i so can i, interrupt you, that- yeah, I yeah, interrupt, yeah. interrupt you for one minute i want to interrupt
2: you for one minute i to say one other thing just this is a general formula a forward bend is relaxing a backward bend is entered is energizing a twist is grounding because what a twist does to the movement of the information flows in the spine and in the brain balances the and en- the information flows in the corpus callosum connecting the right and left hemispheres of the brain so a forward bend is calming. A backward bend is energizing, and a twist is grounding. And I'm not looking at these things in terms of energy or the energetic quality. I'm looking about information processing. Our nervous system is sending signals all through the day, all through the day. And we respond to those signals after they happen with a thought, with an idea about that signal. Um, a car comes shooting down the street, uh, and um, you jump out of the way. You jump out of the way without having thought about it. Your nervous system somehow has sensed it and has caused your body to move out of danger's way, moved out of harm's way. After that happens, you know, and, and in that happening, your heart speeds up, the, um, the adrenals shoot out, adrenaline, maybe some cortisol, and all that, the speeding up, the heating up of the body, you jump out of the way. And then after that, you think, oh my God, that was so scary. You don't think, holy shit, this is so scary. I got to jump out of the way. Mm. You jump first, you think after. So thought is at the end of the chain of physiological response. And so what's happening is communication, information flows, messages being sent. And all of the. this is happening every single second of our existence. Uh, and then we interpret some of those messages As a thought, as a feeling, as an emotion, as an idea that we then cling to. Um, But what we're trying to do in, in in the practice of asanas is let this thinking level settle down and settle into the level of information flows. And if we listen to the information flows and we feel them, Then we can have a better idea of like what they're actually doing on different levels and understand how we can be in harmony with those information flows. Now, not being in harmony with an information flow, not being in harmony with a signal would mean that my body is telling me something, but I'm ignoring what it says because I have an idea that I want to do more, that I want to go further, um, that I'm not there yet. Where the body might be sending messages throughout the, the whole different physiological systems, including the nervous system saying, you're good right here. Stop. Pause. Let it settle in. So this whole mechanism can adjust. But the mind says, do a little more. Go a little faster. Go a little harder. Reach a little further. Then something bad happens. So attunement, this, this is interoception, being, being able to listen to the messages of what the body is saying. It's a very, very, very important aspect of doing asanas, um, you know. And then you can say, "This is like what this asana seems to be doing." It's sending more information flow in this area. Uh, and then, if you want to call it an energetic thing, yeah, call it call it call it energy. Um, that that's fine. But what we don't want to do, or what I don't want to do, is I don't want to um, call something energetic, but not well define what energy is. Because Mm, then we become, we become loosey goosey with language, you know, we start using words that we don't really know what they mean. And then they can mean anything. And if word can mean anything, then you can say anything that you want. And, and with no repercussions, you know, Mm. and you can say anything you want and have other people, you know, try to convince other people that whatever you say, they should believe, because, you know, you've said it. And, uh, and this is what happens in the in the yoga world when we don't have a lot of training. We make assumptions about things and we say them, and we say them to our students. But we don't have a lot of of um, uh, you know real education for what might be happening. So I uh, think about this, you know, I think about that a lot. <laughs> there's a lot.
1: There's, to, a, there's a lot of questions that come up there. I mean, a lot of interesting points. One of them. Is we mentioned that you, you know, that it's very much, and reading your book, I think, in a lot of ways, that the yoga is very much used in a practical way to the world, right? You know, to be calmer, to be kinder, to be, you know, like a you know a better human in the world. So, of the world, imminent. But then there's this thing, that, you know, it's clear in the text of the Bhagavad Gita everywhere in yoga, you know, you have this rather transcendent idea that, you know, you have the reincarnation, you have that yoga is taking one out of the world. the 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 point of denaturing oneself and you mentioned that i think at one point as well that yoga is an irregulating thing that it takes you out of the wish for procreation it takes you out of the wish for you know you know carrying all the whole the whole chain right it can it doesn't need to or what are we is it is it are we using it for the world or for something else to take it out of the world Or, or or can we do the both together
2: it depends on what tradition you're following so if you are following strict yoga patanjali yoga and you have faith in the system of sankhya then sankhya says there are two eternal principles one is awareness or witness consciousness called purusha and another is nature or prakriti and um they always exist side by side um nature uh causes everything to exist and consciousness observes it but it doesn't cause it to happen and um in the uh, advaita vedanta tradition everything is brahman and everything which is created uh, has been created from within brahman as the efficient and material cause uh, but in sankhya efficient and material cause are two separate things um there's so um what we have in a in a Sankhya pr- perspective is that there is resolution of identity. And that's basically what happens. So you're not necessarily escaping from the world in a renunciate type of a way. What you're doing is you're seeing the true nature of the world that then causes you to not identify with the changing modes of nature anymore, and only have your identity filled with awareness, with witness consciousness, with purusha, with pure being. And um, that's called kaivalya. And that is the aloneness or isolation of awareness from everything which changes. So what happens, from my understanding, once kaivalya occurs to any of the infinite purushas, the world does not cease to be. The world continues, nature continues, but you don't identify with it anymore. Um, And this is where you could perhaps say, you could apply a statement like, be in the world but not of it, Um, something like that, because at at the point of Kaivalya, even though you have total liberation, other people don't, and the world continues to exist, and you might still be alive. Therefore, if you still happen to be alive, the world also exists for you, but you, do, you don't identify your entirety of your being with it, like I'm doing right now in this moment, identifying with my name and my life and my wife and my daughter and my parents and my friends and this microphone and a computer and all that stuff, you know? Um, so from a yoga perspective, Kaivalya is this distinction between what never changes, what always is existence, and what's always changing within existence. And those are those those are the two things. I'm very partial to the Sankhya philosophy.
1: Right. I See, like it. So as per, se, your book, can you give us a brief overview of what your feelings of yoga method and yoga aim are?
2: Well. Um, the
1: essence of F- method and the essence of it. F- because also, talking to, say, Edwin Bryant, it occurred that. I was yeah. talking of a different. I occurred on talking with Edwin a lot. You know, Edwin Bryant. He, he's a back to Yogi. That he's actually wanting something very different. You know, he's not wanting resolution. He always he he, keep, he wants duality. He wants a constant duality between him and Krishna, so he can continue yeah. worshipping Krishna forever. But people are very surprised when I've been writing this recently on you know everywhere, and uh, you know because they're assuming you know we only know Patanjali generally and certainly in the kind of yoga. Ashtangri world you know, the, you know this this is the guy isn't he and and that is something very different that's just cessation really you know?
2: well the um here's the thing uh one thing uh one of many things potentially yoga is a dualistic system it's not a non-dualistic system um the advaita vedanta is dualistic but there are different types of vedanta and the one that Edwin follows, and by the way, Edwin, as you know, I don't need to say this, is an amazing scholar. He's brilliant and a wonderful human being. Um, is a, um, I believe he follows the Vishishtadvaita, which is a qualified non dualism, which is that all is one, but the world is really the body of Vishnu. And the highest ideal for the devotee is to be in an eternal relationship, worshiping Lord Krishna. Um, or, or worshipping Vishnu. And so, and Ramanuja in, had um, a, a wonderful book on Ashtanga Yoga. So, this is Ramanuja Acharya, um, has this particular Vishishtadvaita, and Madhvacharya has a different type of va- Vedanta. And um, then uh, the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who Edwin follows, is a slightly different type of um Vedanta, but it's very much linked to Ramanuja. It's so the same basic stream. Um, but again, there are going to be some differences. And Ramanuja wrote one of my favorite books on Ashtanga Yoga, but it's not Ashtanga Yoga because he only accepts the first seven limbs. He doesn't accept Samadhi because in Samadhi, according to Patanjali, the, the, the object of meditation shines forth In the field of consciousness, so much that the meditator disappears. There's no one meditating anymore. There's just the object, which might be Purusha, or might well usually it's not Purusha. It might be some other fine-tuned thing, Um, and so that's all that remains. The meditator is no longer there, and for uh, Vaishnav, this is not desirable. They don't want to disappear. They want to be in the eternal service of Lord Krishna or one of the forms of Vishnu, and so. Uh Ramanuja took these first seven limbs of yoga and he said, All of these are wonderful tools of devotion, including Asana and Pranayama. These are great tools for developing bhakti. And that's the ideal, to develop bhakti, um, but not to disappear. And so he didn't accept samadhi. So it's interesting to see how these limbs of Patanjali's yoga that also existed before the time of Patanjali are used in different ways by different acharyas over many millennia in India to give a a, a presentation which fulfills the heartfelt desires of, of the devotees in, in different ways. So you find the tattvas of Sankhya, the five elements, the tanmatras, the five organs of action, even ideas of um, buddhi and mahat and manas and things like that, those are used in Vedanta. And they're used in different strains of Vedanta, they're used in yoga, they're used in Sankhya, but they're used in slightly different ways um, Mm -hmm. in in each of those. And so one of the things which is also not desirable for uh, the bhakti yogis in regards to yoga is that Patanjali accepts Ishwara, the Lord, a special type of being, untouched by any imperfections, untouched by karma. Um different than than Purusha, different than Prakriti, a special type of of being. Um, To call Purusha God or the Lord is not the right, really, description, but it's a divine presence. Um, And Patanjali suggests that Ishwara and the surrender to Ishwara will result in the perfection of samadhi. And so... But in the bhakti traditions, the best relationship with Ishwara is only to worship the divine, mm-hmm. and to be in that internal, internal, uh, eternal relationship with your beloved. And so, the only result of of bhakti, of of a relationship with Ishwara, is for the purpose of bhakti alone, for the sake of developing devotion and surrender alone. Mm-hmm. That's all. To be in that presence. But Patanjali says if you want to perfect samadhi, then Ishwara Pranidhana is the thing to practice. And for the inward movement of your awareness and for the removal of the, um, of the obstructions to, you know, to the field of knowing, then Ishwara Pranidhana. So it, Patanjali uses Ishwara in a slightly different way um, and a radically different way than will be used in the Vaishnava traditions and also within the Vedanta traditions. Um, so, uh, that's why when we, when we use these terms, we also have to talk about, well, what tradition are we speaking in regards to, because the terms are not always globally Mm. accepted. Um, now there's one thing about the definition of yoga. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've asked a, a few Scholars, some Hindu scholars who I um, learned from in India, what they think about this—they have not agreed with me on it—but I still think I'm I'm right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. and and but I think it's a basic thing, and I think it's okay that Patanjali said um, that yoga is the nidodaha of the vrittis in the field of chitta. It is the stilling or selective elimination of the activities, vrittis, in the field of citta, the permutations that can occur of consciousness, or the stilling of the thoughts in the mind, or the ability to rest your awareness on one thing to the exclusion of all other things. I think that this is a fundamental principle of all practices. And so no matter what kind of yoga it is, whether you're doing Bhakti yoga, or you're doing jnana yoga, or karma yoga, or if you're doing tantra, or Kashmiri Shaivism, or kriya yoga, anything, that you need to be able to rest your awareness on one thing with unwavering attention. Um, that seems to be globally true for all of the practices under the heading of yoga. So I think this is what they have in, in connection and why Patanjali's viewpoint uh, has been so important as a connector. Um, If not in all the different ways, but in this one fundamental way that if we are not able to rest our attention or awareness in one place with in a deliberate manner to the exclusion of any other activity, then we're not able to really truly do yoga. And if you are doing that, no matter what tradition you're in, then you are doing yoga, although the outcome of that yoga might be slightly different. Devotion, liberation, kaivalya, whatever the, the things are. So that's kind of um, my 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 thinking on it currently, and my thinking currently might change in ten years. You know, if you still have your podcast ten years from now, we can do this again and decide whether or not everything I just said was hogwash. But um,
1: so I I like um, something um, just a slight segue. I didn't answer your question, by the way. No, you did. You right. did. No, you yeah. did ask some of it. I mean, we asked about method and aim. Um, and the method is clear. The aim, well, I mean, you name, know, we don't even know the aim unless we know the aim. And then if we, if we understand the aim, then really, there's nothing to say, really.
2: Good. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. Stop there for a minute. Okay. Wait, okay. wait on that point. You have to understand the aim. This is absolutely true. Um, and there are three words that encapsulate this. And these are the sadhaka, sadhana, and sadya. And the sadhaka is the person who is questioning. That's you and me and everybody else. So we're the sadhakas. We are questioning. We wonder. And then we have a sadhana. That's a means of answering our questions or of letting our questions fall away because something better takes its place. The sadhana is going to be in line with the question. And then the sadhya is the result of that. It's the point that we reach. It's the quote-unquote goal or the place we want to arrive rather than a goal. So there's the sadhika, the questioner, the sadhana, the means, and the sadhya, the point of arrival, of understanding or of liberation. So say the thing that we're questioning is an existential thing. Who am I? What is creation? Where is the universe? You know, why are we here? Why did this creation happen? Um, who is the one which is questioning? These are all the kind of existential questions mm. that, that we have, um, that people have had for thousands of years. Um, okay, so then that's the, the needs of that particular sadhaka. And then the sadhana might be jnana yoga. Okay, so now I'm going to do the sadhana of questioning who am I, of studying texts, of listening to teachers, and reflecting on what they say. And then the sadhya of that will be the full, complete knowledge of who I am. Okay, so I'm questioning, who am I? What is all this? And then my sadhana is in line with jnana yoga. And the sadhya is a complete and full knowing of who I am. Now, maybe my problem is that um, I am filled with selfish desires. Like, I only think about me. I'm only concerned with myself. Uh, I only want my own fulfillment. I don't think of other people, and I know it's a problem. It doesn't make me happy, Um, and I recognize my selfishness. So that's the sadhaka, and then I question, how can I not be so selfish? So then the sadhana will then be karma yoga of the giving of myself without the expectation of return. So I do service in any different types of way. Maybe I work at a soup kitchen, or maybe I start donating money or maybe I start volunteering my time here or there or maybe I start thinking of others before I think of myself simply like that. And then the sadhya, the result of that is my desire for fulfilling myself turns into a desire for um, knowing the divinity in all people and recognizing that and that my life becomes one of service and devotion, uh, without expectation of any rewards. And therefore, all my selfish desires have been transmuted into a much higher desire, which is that all beings may be happy because we all suffer to the same or lesser extents. Okay. So, uh, and then you can do the same with Raja Yoga. You can do the same with Bhakti Yoga. You can do the same with all the yogas that, and, and so the, the sadhaka, the questions that we have in particular, are related to our adhikara, our eligibility. Um, the qualifications we have are going to determine the sadhana we do, which will lead to a particular outcome, which will be the fulfillment of our being. And so, yes, to know where we're going is part of why we practice. And if we practice something without knowing where we're going, maybe we don't arrive. Maybe we get lost. Maybe we go, oh, I know I want to do this thing. I jump on this train and I just go. I don't care where it's going. I'll, wherever I end up it's going to be fine. Maybe some places you know you end up, you might not get there because you don't know where you're going. You get somewhere else, you learn something, but mm. you might not get to what the thing promises. So with Raja Yoga or Ashtanga Yoga, the fulfillment is in stillness. And so that is the promise of Raja Yoga, absolute total stillness so that all of the troubles of the mind have um, absorbed themselves back into an equilibrium. And then again, there is a, a knowing of oneself. But, and it's the method of, of stillness. And so we use asanas and pranayamas and all of the other limbs to always move towards stillness. Um, and in that stillness, pure being reflects in the field of our chitta, and that becomes our understanding or our self-knowing uh, and if there's not stillness then the mind does not become a fit receptacle to reflect uh, reality or nature. So that's that's, yep, that's yep. Ashkanga Yoga.
1: You, yeah, you, you've done it there. Um, that's a full <laughs> qualification of our point. Yeah, that's no, no, nice. Um, okay. And you provided the little link into my last question as well. So I, I heard you talking about the role of the teacher, that we have this model, the guru-shisha relationship, and you mm-hmm. said it's not appropriate for, you know, for, as it's been transmuted in the West, it doesn't really seem to produce the goods, as it were. Um, so what's the role of a the teacher then?
2: Okay, and so we talk, I,
1: I suppose we're talking about asanas. We're talking, I mean, I'm a yoga teacher, you're an asana teacher, you know, um, but people are going to ask you for mm-hmm. all kinds of things, right? Okay. And they're going to ask you to take care of them, <laughs> guide all them. Right.
2: I, 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 get you. Um, so first of all, um, I, the guru tradition is a part of the Hindu culture. Um, it's part of Buddhist culture as well. It's part of the, you know, all the, say, all the different things that arose from India. The guru tradition is part of that. Um, and it's very much a cultural thing. And it's hard for a Westerner to understand what that relationship is. Some people can do it. Um, but not everybody. And um, so I think it's absolutely fine for Westerners to have um, gurus and, in, in India. I, d- I, don't think we can, I don't think most people will ever really fully understand that relationship. But what I don't think is okay is I don't think it's okay for Westerners to think that they can be gurus because that's not our cultural tradition. Now, there are going to be some Westerners who are brought up in — they were raised in Gurukul-type conditions, like in the Hare Krishna movement. And so within that movement, if they have a process of turning um, or or of Westerners becoming Guru-like figures, like, I'm not judging or criticizing that at all. It it will work within their context. But from what I've observed over the years — and this is just my observation — is that in the West, it doesn't work because it's not part of our cultural tradition and because we don't understand what that relationship really is. Um, I think over here, it's better for us to be spiritual friends, um, to know that we're like all on this path together and maybe some are, are, are a little bit further forward and we can seek out mentorship and friendship. And that's a pretty good relationship for us because yoga is not from our culture either. We're practicing something which doesn't come from where we're from but we're adopting our lifestyles to it but we can only do so at a superficial level we can't do it at a level like a cellular level or a level of our genes you know we're not born into it we're born over here we're going to understand it differently and so we need to engage with it i feel and people of course are free to prove me wrong or disagree with me or whatever but this is my feeling is that uh there's so many problems in the yoga world Um, that we would be better off all thinking about our relationship as spiritual friends or mentors or something like that. And, um, and leave the hierarchies of the Guru Shisha tradition to people whose culture it forms a part of. From my understanding, um, from the studies I've done of, uh, into the Guru tradition, from particularly from the teachings of the um, last Acharya of, of Kamchipuram, the Chandra Shekharendra Bharati, uh, who wrote a wonderful book called The Guru Tradition, which is uh, very, it's a little bit dry, but it really uh, elucidated a lot of things from the Guru Tradition of the Hindu culture, um, was that the Guru is not really the body. Um, the Guru is the knowledge and the teachings, and the experience which is going to be transmitted through a person. And what we do is we have gratitude and respect for the knowledge that we have learned. And for that we are always grateful and always respectful. Um, but any embodied being is going to have problems associated with them because they have taken on a human form. Some of those problems might be greater. Some of them might be lesser. Um, and uh, so, for example, with Patabi Joyce, we've seen that some of the behavior that he engaged in was extremely painful for many, many people. Um, and the the sexual abuses have left a, um, a a lasting imprint on this tradition that might take some time to recover from. Um, if ever. Um, but the, the the pain that was caused, I don't believe should be forgotten. Uh, that shouldn't be pushed under the carpet because pain is pain. We can maybe at a certain point, people, if they choose to, can find their own resolution. Um, but That's not what I'm saying here or what I want to talk about. What I want to mm-hmm. talk about here is that what do you do if you have a guru who did really harmful things to women and to other people as well Mm. um you know how do you how do you manage that Mm. um so um and we are in the ashtanga yoga world are not alone in this problem there this Mm. has occurred to many teachers and many gurus it occurs in in the church it occurs in synagogues it occurs in schools it occurs in politics it occurs in sports Um, at any level there seem to be Really bad guys who sexually abuse people is like a problem of, of humanity or of men in particular. And uh, to a very lesser extent to women, a very lesser extent. So, um, if we look for guidance from within the Hindu tradition on this, one of the, one of the suggestions is always be grateful for what you have learned. That's it. You don't have to forgive a person for their bad actions. You definitely should not excuse the bad actions. Um, But what do you do with the information? What do you do with the knowledge? You're appreciative for it. Um, I mean, I'm still teaching anyone who... um, Well, let me just back this up. I don't want to say anyone. That's never a good way to start a sentence. Um, I still am teaching Ashtanga Yoga, even though... I am still in conflict about Patabi Joyce. Um, that's just a fact, you know, I still am. Um, and um, there were, and, but I'm, I'm still grateful for what my life is right now. And um, so, uh, but it doesn't, I don't excuse his behavior. I make no defenses for him whatsoever. Um, and at the same time, I'm grateful for the knowledge. I'm grateful for, um, for what I've been able to do with that. And I'm appreciative for what I've been able to, to benefit from that. And I'm appreciative of how I've been able to share with that. Um, and so therefore the guru tradition can be complicated, um, when it comes down to a human level what if it isn't at a human level? Because if you look to the texts and you look to the ancient stories and the Puranas, many of the rishis and many of the yogis were complicated figures and did things which by any human standard uh, or any moral standard would not be considered okay. And yet those teachings still exist. So um, now the only problem with talking in this way is that um people might feel that their pain is not being acknowledged Hmm. okay and so i think that philosophizing about the guru tradition can become dangerous because it's important to acknowledge people's pain and that yes this happened to you and, and and yes if i you know, for example, was not able to be there for someone the way they needed to be, like, then I'm sorry about that. And I wish that I could have been. So all of these acknowledgements, you know, need, need to, be, to be had and made and thought about. So on a personal human level, that's my feeling. Really mm-hmm. painful things really happened. And then on, um, on another level, um, I believe that the Guru tradition in the way that knowledge is passed down and has been passed down in India, um, is very valuable, and is a, and, a, and is a, an important institution. But then I also feel that that institution does not translate very well to America. Um, I don't know about Europe, but I'm going to talk about America because that's where mm-hmm. I live. And I'm going to include North America, uh, in Canada, in that um, the. There are certain aspects of it that really haven't gone well. And some of it has to do with, um, am I going on too long about this, Adam? You're you're cool with all this? No, it's good. It's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: No, just Uh, a few um, minutes more. It's my last question. All right. So um,
2: so I'll say one other thing. I'll I'll, I'll say one other thing about it. Um, That I, you know, and again, I could be very wrong about this, but it's just something that I, that I question. Um, That, you know, As Westerners, a lot of us read books like Autobiography of a Yogi, and we read all the Ramana Maharshi books and the Neem Karoli Baba books. And we wanted, you know, and Muktananda and and Nityananda and all those, and Anandamayama and all the gurus who were performing miracles and, you know, bestowing liberation on people and all that stuff. And a lot of us wanted that. We were looking for that. And and we superimposed that stuff on teachers like Batabi Joyce, you know, we superimpose our desires for what we want them to be on top of them, and they might not really be that person. Uh, And so when we force that on them, then that changes them sometimes also. It's like believing your own press, you know, if all of a sudden people start talking about you positively, because you've done something, And then people start really praising you and you start believing that praise and then you start looking for that praise. And then if you don't get that praise, you know, maybe you get upset or you act out in a certain way. Um, I'm not talking about acting out with sexual abuse. That's a problem that a person has in them already. Um, but we superimpose things on people and, and, uh, and then that changes them. And, um, and I've, you know, I've seen that happen in different spiritual communities over, over the years. And so I think we need to protect ourselves as, practitioners and as students and as teachers, we need to be wary of of that potential in ourselves and to watch out for it, that we don't superimpose stuff on people. We allow them to be, that if we have a red flag about someone, we listen to it, um, and that for our own selves, we um, we remain honest about what our level is, our level of understanding, of knowledge, of practice, of commitment, of everything. We don't bullshit about that. You know, um, if we still like punk rock, like we do if we, if we like fashion, like I do, if I like whatever I like, I'm going to like it. I'm not going to pretend that I'm otherwise, you know, um, I'm not going to put on the guise of what I want people to think of me so that I have to, you know, live out some fantasy and superimpose bad stuff on people. Um, so that's one of my takeaways from the past couple of years. It's right. been a, a painful process for a lot of people. Um I'm one of those people. There are many of us. There are many of us. Uh, especially especially the uh women who were, were sexually abused. So um that's um, you know, we'll see what happens. Um and um I um I don't know, you know, I don't know what else to say about that, Adam. Um
1: <laughs> That's really you know, you know, really it's confusing, isn't it? And and I yeah. think Thank yeah. you
0: Thank you. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. and and not, and not not knowing and, and not having to know that's something you know, and that's then that's a space, isn't that? Providing a space,
0: um, yeah,
2: or just you, you know, know,
1: including on someone else's behalf. That's, yeah, uh,
2: everyone, everyone.
0: Waters.
2: Yeah, everyone needs to come to their own conclusion, but I think there has to be, you know, we 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 should never minimize pain, the pain or suffering of someone else. That's the main thing. Like we should never minimize that and um, that always needs to be a part of the conversation, you know, uh, it happens and it does happen.
1: Okay. Well, let's, uh, I can't let you go on that note. Well, Thank you. Th- 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 thanks for, thanks for coming. But what, I mean, just to, I always ask these silly questions. What's, uh, you, you know, you like music. What's your, give me some background on, on your love of music or fashion, just as a parting note, you know, something lighthearted. Uh, just to to say goodbye on i usually ask someone what their biggest inspiration is and and what their guilty pleasure is um what do you have to say on that
2: uh okay well i don't um i don't know what my guilty pleasure is um let's let's that's not not a guilty guilty pleasure god no god no um yeah i love music i mean i um My father and mother both listened to a lot of music when I was growing up. So my first earliest musical memories are Simon and Garfunkel and Don McLean, uh, and Bob Dylan. So that's what I remember from, you know, the time I was, this is one and a half, two years old. I remember listening to, um, you know, the bridge over troubled water record. And the first album my dad ever bought me was American pie by Don McLean when I was three. So, um, I I have musical memories and, um, you know, I remember the first time I heard David live at my friend uh, Peter Hansen's house when I was in sixth grade and um, David Bowie live, of course, in Philadelphia. So um, that sparked my love of Bowie. Uh, My friend uh, Nick Cooper, who I went to school with, he introduced me to The Clash and to the Buzzcocks and to X (laughs) in like seventh grade or so. And um, so, yeah, I went to my first concert with him. Um, so music has always been a big, big part of my life. Um, I, uh, uh, as I mentioned in the one simple thing book, I wrote that book mainly listening to Nick cave and David Bowie, mainly listening to Nick cave and David Bowie. This next book I'm writing, I'm mainly listening to smashing pumpkins, um, who I love, you know, I love that band. And, um, and there's a couple of their albums which I hadn't really listened to a lot, which have been like my soundtrack. Um, and um, so, uh, you their don't later listen albums. to it while you're
1: writing, do you? You don't mm-hmm. listen to do. That whilst, you, whilst you're writing, I do. You start writing the words. I was trying to write something, and someone's playing Dylan outside. I, you know, I started writing the words.
2: No, yeah. I. Um, it 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 makes wow. things in my brain click together. You know, yeah. music is music is interesting because. It has this effect of globally firing neurons in the brain, whereas, you know, specific types of thinkings or activities are making different specific parts of the brain fire. But music has this effect of having a more of a global effect of the signaling of the neurons, which means it opens up more pathways and more connections Um, sometimes. And um, can, you know, help to sort of quote-unquote rewire the brains in certain ways. So I um, when I listen to music uh, for creativity, that's what happens. Um, I put something on which sparks something in me. And then because of the way the neurons are firing and the information flows are going, my creative capacities for insight into the things I'm writing about expand. And that's mm. what I do. And, um, it's just, it's just how my brain works. And, um, so I don't know, I would venture, there are a lot of people out there who write about philosophy and science while listening to the Smashing Pumpkins. That's just my venture. (laughs) I'd love to meet them. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the punk rock movement, right? If you were a punk rocker in, in in the eighties or seventies in England, um, that was highly about fashion. I mean, we were, it took hours to get our hair just right and to dye it the right color and to stud our leather jackets. So that's always been something, maybe it's coming from New York, I don't know. But those two things have always been, they're things I enjoy. I like creativity and, um, and, um, and, and I prefer to think of it not as fashion, but as aesthetic, aesthetics. I like design. Any nicely designed thing, you know, I, I, I enjoy and have an appreciation of. But as a as a follower of Sankhya, um, I take delight in the experience of the world. And um the Vedantis, you know, the non-dualists, they might say this world is, you know, illusory. Don't get seduced by it. But in yoga, they say the world exists for two things, experience and liberation. And so I enjoy the experiences of the world. Um, and um So that's why I don't, you know, you only, it becomes a guilty pleasure when it's an indulgence and it pulls you away from um, the things you need to be doing or focusing on. You don't have to be guilty about it if it enhances your experience of being an effective human being in the world.
1: Right. That's a good end note. Thanks, (laughs) Hey, Adam, I
2: I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for letting me blather on. Thank you for uh, giving me the space to talk honestly about how I feel Mm -hmm. about everything from philosophy to Patabi Joyce to to music, and I really appreciate the uh, open nature of our dialogue. It was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks, Eddie, for coming. Thank you. Hey